If you have a Bible, would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2? Uh, I promise you, we're going to finish chapter 2 today uh, and move on in the book of 1 Peter. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. If you're using one of the red Story Church Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 2, starting uh, at verse 18, we're on page 589. 589. Um, well, let me tell you a story first. Uh, the day had finally arrived, the big game, the one that their whole season had been looking forward to. The Tulsa Nationals Little League team had fought hard game after game all summer long. They were the underdogs, but they rose to the occasion. They had came out on top at the end of the season. They became the Oklahoma representatives to the Little League World Series. Now, this first game was only the Southwest Regional, but this was the farthest this team had ever gotten before. This was the big one. Already in the first inning, uh, this game was proving to be one for the history books. The team from Texas, the repeat champions, they were on top already, three to two, but it was at the bottom of the first inning, and shortstop Isaiah Jarvis walked up to the plate. The crowd was deafening. Everyone was cheering, shouting for each team to win the battle. It was fierce. And then as pitcher Caden Shelton let the fastball go, the crowd fell silent. Shelton's fastball got away from him. And instead of going down the middle of home plate, it veered off and it hit Jarvis in the head. The crowd fell silent. Jarvis fell to a heap at home plate. The only sounds you could hear were the stampede of feet as coaches and the staff rushed to his side to check on him. There was an exclamation from the empire who was witness to it all. He said, oh my God. Players took a knee. Parents stood in anxious anticipation. While back at the pitcher's mound, Shelton started pacing and pacing and pacing, visibly distraught. In most cases like this, in the major leagues, when a batter gets pelted, his teammates rush from the dugout. They go out to defend their player. They charge at the mound. They yell words of accusations. They point fingers. Managers run out, start getting into fights with one another. Empires rush to break up the argument. That's what we normally see happen, retaliation. Not in this game. Thankfully, upon closer observation in the slow-mo replay, you can see that as the fastball approached home plate, Jarvis was able to turn his head. The ball hit the side of his helmet. He was on the ground more shaken up in fear than he was hurt. He got back to his feet, took his base, and the other players rose from their knees, and the play resumed. Except it couldn't resume. Because back at the pitcher's mound, Caden was distraught. His head was down, 
His arms were lowered. He couldn't believe what he had just done. He was shaken up. No one moved as all eyes turned to the picture. What was going to happen? And then someone did move. From the first base, Isaiah Jarvis took off his helmet, began walking to the mound. He took off his gloves. He reached Shelton and embraced him. He brought him close and he said, I'm okay. It's okay. You're going to be okay. And then the game went on. One team won, one team lost. That didn't matter. What people remember from that game, which happened this week, was that Isaiah chose in that moment, instead of retaliation, he chose compassion. Instead of anger and vengeance, he chose love. He could have sought justice for what happened to him, but he chose to show kindness. What compelled Isaiah Jarvis to choose compassion over retaliation? This morning, we're going to look at a passage from the Apostle Peter in his letter that he wrote to Christians who were facing pain and suffering and injustice at the hands of their neighbors. These were Christians who were persecuted for their faith, who were striving to remain faithful to the Lord despite the pressures rising against them. And in this passage, Peter instructs the Christians to choose the gospel over retaliation. As we read this passage, we're going to ask three questions. One, who is Peter writing to? Two, what does Peter want them to do? And three, how is that even possible? Who is he writing to? What does he ask them to do? And how is that even possible? Let's read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 35. Sorry, 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it reminds us of and what it points us to. We do pray, Spirit, would you direct our minds and hearts to the gospel, to Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. In his name we pray, amen. So first, who is Peter writing to? We see right at the outset, verse 18, we see Peter addressing servants. Servants, be subject to your masters. This is the second of the human institutions that Peter is addressing in this larger section of chapter 2. He begins earlier, we looked at this last week, where Peter talks to citizens being subject to the king or the emperor and to all those in positions of authority over them. After this, he'll write to wives, calling them to submit to their own husbands in the structure and institution of the family. But here, Peter is addressing slaves. And he says to slaves, be subject to your masters. He's talking to slaves in the Roman Empire. He's talking to Christian slaves, slaves who were part of the church in the various cities that received this letter, encouraging them to remain faithful to the Lord and engage their neighbors. This isn't the only time that the writers of the New Testament address slavery. Paul, one of the other apostles, who wrote about 25% of our New Testament, he gives instructions in six of his letters to slaves. He tells them how they're to interact with their masters. In fact, he wrote an entire letter, the letter to Philemon, all about how Philemon, who was a slave owner, was to receive back his runaway slave, Onesimus who had run away and had become a fellow Christian like Philemon. The Bible is not shy when it talks about slavery in the first century. Unfortunately, though, in our contemporary society, we, we too often hear accusations thrown at the Bible and about Christians that claim that because the apostles do not call out slavery and, and demand that it be abolished, well, then they are therefore in favor of slavery. Every time we come to a text like this, we hear that accusation. A quick Google search will give you plenty of hits of, of blogs and articles writing about how Paul and Peter and the rest of the Bible were pro-slavery. This is unfortunate because in our society, in our desire to see a revolutionary call from the past, we fail to see just how radical Peter is actually being in his day and time. The writers of the New Testament were not being revolutionaries, but they were being radical in their approach. Like to begin with, it was radical for Peter to even address slaves at all. This is a section where he's talking about these institutions, and Paul does the same thing in Ephesians and Colossians. Uh, he talks about government and work and the house and parents and children. 
These things are called the, the household codes. It's a literary feature that was all over the ancient world and these kinds of things. But nowhere else in the ancient world, when you look at these tables of household codes, nowhere do we see anyone addressing slaves. Yes, there's information about how masters are supposed to treat their slaves, but never are the writers actually talking to slaves. But here, Peter is giving slaves a moral imperative. He's actually showing their humanity, whereas the rest of the world was trying to make them subhuman, Peter is actually showing them that they have dignity. They have moral responsibility. This was radical in the day. Further on, in verse 19, Peter is going to refer to the suffering that these slaves go through, and he calls this suffering unjust. This passes us by as just part of Peter's larger argument, but in, in that society where the teachings of Aristotle have already argued that injustice could not happen to slaves because slaves were merely property, for Peter to recognize that these men and women were being treated unjustly is to give them value and worth. Yes, Peter is not turning a blind eye to slavery. He is actually being far more radical than his contemporaries are. He sees these men and women as people with value and dignity, with moral responsibility, as people who have been the victims of an injustice. This was a radical approach to take. It was this kind of radical thinking that uh, led in the early 19th century to the abolishing of the slave trade. Peter is writing to slaves and he's giving them instruction. He's instructing them on how to behave in regard to their masters. But the word he uses for slaves here, it's actually a word that means uh, household servant. It's, it's a little bit different than the usual term in the New Testament when, he, when we hear about slaves. These are household servants. And it reminds us that slavery in the ancient world was different than slavery in, in the new world. Slaves in the ancient world, um, sometimes they were captives of war. Sometimes they were born into it. But often the time, slaves in the ancient world were men and women who were in some kind of financial debt and sold themselves into the, uh, the, the house of another person to work for them to pay off that debt. And the jobs that they took on, many of them we would consider today to be professions that many people seek careers out of. There were tutors and teachers who were slaves, physicians who were slaves, uh, estate managers, contractors, even there was political workers who we might say today were lobbyists. Those were slaves sent by the owner of the house to go into the public square. And while these men and women did not have personal or social or civil rights that we have today, Peter is addressing these people who have faced or could face a universal situation. 
You see, he's not just talking to slaves. He is talking to anyone who could possibly be on the receiving end of an unjust suffering. False accusations, maltreatment in the workplace, abuse, beatings, persecution, unfair treatment, corrupt leaders. Certainly, slaves were in a position to receive such treatment, especially since Peter is writing to Christian slaves who most likely didn't have believing masters. They were at greater risk of receiving punishment for that. But Peter is writing to us today, too. He's addressing any one of us who have been mistreated. Any one of us who face a difficult situation at work or outside of work. Anyone who has suffered unjustly. He is talking to anyone who has placed an order online at Chipotle only to walk in and have the manager say that they were out of chips, out of fajitas, out of hard shell tacos, out of corn, and then say that there was nothing that they could do because I already placed the order online. Any one of us who has been on the receiving end of injustice, Peter is writing to us. So what then does he have to say? What does he want us to do? Generally speaking, he's saying, slaves, be subject to your masters. This is the same command that he gave to all citizens. Be subject to the governing authorities over you. But then in verse 19, he specifies, what does it mean to be subject to them? He says, when one endures suffering, sorry, when one endures sorrows, while suffering unjustly is a gracious thing to God. His instruction is to endure unjust suffering, to face injustice with patience, to endure it. He knows that our instinct is to retaliate. He knows that our instinct is to storm off, to throw a fit, to be enraged, to clench our fists, to raise our voices. He knows that that is our default response. And he says, instead of retaliating, choose to endure this suffering with patience. Where does that suffering come from? Peter is frank about it. He says that slaves are to be subject to their masters, both good and gentle ones, who treat them fairly, but also to the unjust ones who do them harm. That word, though, unjust, masters, it's not a description of the quality of the wrongdoing. He's not saying that these people do unjust things. He's saying that they themselves are unjust. It's, it's a word that means crooked or bent. They are corrupt masters. And because they are bent and crooked, they do terrible things. They are a corrupt person. Their treatment to their workers flows out of the kind of person they are. Have you ever worked as an employee under someone you might describe as bent or crooked or corrupt? Something about them is just off. Their actions 
are just evidence of that. They treat you poorly. They run the business poorly. Peter is telling us that we are to be subject to them, to endure their suffering with patience. Peter is very clear, though. This isn't any kind of suffering. He admits that sometimes we are the ones that do wrong. And when we do wrong, we will reap the consequences of that wrong. He isn't saying that when we endure the kind of suffering because we did wrong, that's pleasing to the Lord. No. He's saying when we do good, when we are upright, when we're respectful, when we act honorably, when we choose righteousness, and in the face of that, we receive punishment and maltreatment and dishonesty and corrupt behavior. It is in the face of such injustice that our patient endurance through suffering is pleasing to the Lord. Now, I need to make two caveats here. First, in the case of self-defense, when you or a loved one is in mortal danger by the actions of a corrupt individual, and, and when their behavior is certainly unjustifiable, yes, in those instances, we are not called to just sit idly by and receive that injustice. We are called to defend ourselves and the lives of those around us. The sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder, is not just a commandment against murder. It is a commandment that we must protect life. And that commandment is a higher call than Peter's instruction here. When we face that kind of injustice, we are to defend life, whether it is our own or those around us. And second, in the cases of sexual harassment, especially in the workplace, this is not a command to have you or me just sit idly by and receive that injustice. No, our situation today is different than what Peter is talking about. In those days, there was no protection on the slave. There was no means to rectify the situation. There was no accountability given to the master. But today, we have those protections in the workplace. They're not perfect. They could certainly be better, but they are there. This commandment does not say, shut up and take it. No, this says, protect yourself. Hold that person accountable. There might be other caveats in specific situations which require wisdom and advice, but the general rule of thumb, Peter is telling us, endure suffering with patience. Whether it's because of our faith or because of the injustice and corruption of our master, whether it's in the marketplace or out about in the community, wherever we face injustice, we are called to endure it with patience. In other words, Peter is calling us to suffer like Christ. See how he connects this command to Jesus in verse 21? For to this you have been called. Suffer with endurance. This is what you have been called to because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. 
We are to look at the life of Jesus and see how he handled this injustice and then follow him in his footsteps. Peter says, Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He was good, he was kind, he was gentle, and yet when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Jesus was mocked by his family. He was cast out of his hometown by his friends. He was opposed to at every turn by the Pharisees. He was on the run for his life. He was ridiculed by the populace. And at the end of his life, he was betrayed by one of his closest friends. He was arrested under the cover of darkness while he was alone praying in the garden. He was dragged before a kangaroo court. False accusations hurled against him. He was paraded out as a joke with a crown of thorns. He was beaten to the brink of death with whips. And then he was dragged through the town, carrying his own cross, where he was then publicly stripped and hung by nails to die. How did Jesus handle that? Did he retaliate? Did he promise to get even? Did he say, you, you haven't seen the last of me? Did he storm away in anger? Did he threaten to exact punishment? No. He responded to evil, not with evil, but with good. Peter says, he suffered for you. We'll get to what that means in a minute, but you see how he took the opportunity to seek revenge and turned it around for good. He turned wrongdoing into an opportunity to bless. He didn't just endure suffering. He took advantage of it to turn the tables on those who wanted to do him harm. And instead of reviling them when reviled, instead of threatening them when suffering, he did good for them. Peter calls us to endure suffering with patience. He calls us to suffer like Jesus, to walk in his footsteps, which means not only enduring suffering, but in the midst of that pain, finding ways to bless, to respond to evil, not with retaliation, but with good. So how in the world is that even possible? Right? That's the question. How is that possible? When we're faced with injustice, when we've been maltreated, when we're on the receiving end of pain and suffering like this, how do we respond with good? Like, if you're anything like me, there is something in us that wants to just cry out and fight for justice when we're mistreated. We want to respond with vengeance. We want to right the wrong. We want to defend ourselves. We want to rectify the situation. I know that that's in you too. I know that that desire, that longing for justice is in you. Because you've been made in the image of God. And that longing for justice is there because God 
is a God of justice. He has given you that desire. Because we're made in his image, we long for justice too. Remember the story of the Exodus? God's people were slaves in Egypt under the oppressive rule of Pharaoh. They were mistreated beyond anything that we have ever imagined. And their cries for vengeance, their cries for liberation, their cries for justice went up to the Lord, and he remembered them and came down and brought them out. God is a God of justice. Because we were made in his image, we long for justice too when we've been slighted. And yet, when we look at the life of Jesus, the very Son of God, the one upon whom the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell, God made man who is the exact imprint of the glory of God. When we look at him, when he was the victim of injustice, he did not respond with vengeance. He responded with love. How? Jesus not only shows us what it looks like to endure suffering, he also shows us the key to endure suffering. Look at verse 23. When Jesus suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. How did Jesus respond with kindness and love? When he suffered, he entrusted himself to the Father, the God of justice, because he knew that his Father, the God of justice, would judge justly. At the end of his life, as he hung there from the tree, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. How do, how do we do that? How do we forgive in the face of such great suffering? I think we often pit forgiveness and justice against one another. That if we were to forgive, well, that means that justice hasn't been served. But justice is not the opposite of forgiveness. The opposite of forgiveness is retaliation. The opposite of forgiveness is vengeance. Miroslav Volf, a public theologian who witnessed firsthand the atrocities of the, the Bosnian and Croatian wars, who saw vengeance brought upon one after another, this unending cycle of violence, he, he reminds us that revenge is annulled at the cross, wherein we see the greatest example of forgiveness. He says, forgiveness does not override justice. Forgiveness, is, is at, by its very nature, implies an obligation, a debt owed to God and to others. It, it, forgiveness is not the absence of justice. Forgiveness enthrones justice. Forgiveness enthrones and upholds justice. Jesus is able to forgive, entrusting himself over to a just God because he knows 
that forgiveness enthrones justice. Here's what he means. Whenever there is forgiveness, there has to be a debt paid. You see, justice, justice recognizes uh, you've done something wrong, and there's a, a, a debt paid that, that you owe because of the wrong that you've done. That, that's justice. Forgiveness says you've done something wrong, and there's a debt to be paid because of what you're, you've done, but I will take on that debt myself. When I was a kid, I was playing at a neighbor's house, and he had just gotten as a gift from his grandfather a Rubik's Cube. But it wasn't just any other Rubik's Cube. It was shiny. It was metallic. It was uh, really sturdy. It was, it was beautiful. It was attractive. I, I wanted to play with it. Uh, but it was his special new gift. And uh, at one point, we were playing, and his mom called him downstairs from his room to do something. And there I was in the room with the Rubik's Cube, the one I wanted to play with. And I had never really played with a Rubik's Cube before. I didn't know what to do with it. I just knew you twisted it and turned it. And I was playing with it. And uh, if you've ever used a new Rubik's Cube, I don't know if that's a common experience amongst our church, but uh, when you use a new Rubik's Cube, um, the, the, the mechanism, it, it's pretty tight, and it locks up real quickly. I didn't know that. And as I was twisting it, it locked up, and I, I, I twisted it harder, and it was harder and harder, and eventually I twisted it too hard. And it broke. If you've ever broken a Rubik's Cube, if you break one part of the Rubik's Cube, all of the pieces fall apart. And I didn't know what to do. I very quickly shoved the pieces under his bed, put some other toys in front of it, and pretended like nothing ever happened. Later that day, well, my friend found his Rubik's Cube. And he went to his mom, crying, and uh, she came to me and asked me what I did. And I confessed. Now in that moment, the mom asked her son to forgive me. And he did. He asked me, or he forgave me. Uh, but in that moment, the Rubik's Cube didn't magically come back together. Now the mom had to go to the store and spend money, and pay the debt to restore what was broken. I had done something wrong. I had a debt to pay. But the mom chose to receive that debt herself. She actively chose to suffer in order for forgiveness to be executed. That's what Miroslav Volf is saying. That forgiveness doesn't abolish justice. No, it actually affirms that you have done something wrong and there is a debt to be paid. But I am going to assume that debt for you. Forgiveness requires suffering. Justice requires suffering. Wolf goes on, he says, the cross, the cross is the ultimate example of what forgiveness will cost. It's at the cross that we see the justice of God and his forgiveness. 
until we hear our own voices calling out to crucify Christ, until we see that it was our own sin against Jesus, our injustice against the perfect Holy One, well, then the cross doesn't make any sense to us. But when we see that we were the unjust ones and that Jesus entrusted himself to the Father who judges justly, well, then when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, that changes our life. Because we see then at the cross that he bore our sin. He suffered for us. And because he took that penalty, because he took that payment, we are forgiven. This is the key to letting go of vengeance. This is the key of letting go of retaliation. This is how we choose the gospel in the face of injustice, because we ourselves have been forgiven. Back before World War II, in the nation of Korea, before it was split between the North and the South, it was occupied by the Japanese Empire. And there was a pastor, a Korean pastor, Pastor Son Yang Wan, who was commissioned to plant a church in a leper colony. And at that time, and in those days, if you did not uh, bow the knee to the emperor of Japan, well, then you would be thrown into jail. And, and Pastor Wan remained faithful to the Lord and did not bow his knee. He was thrown into concentration camps for 18 months, suffering for the gospel. He, he wrote this in light of that experience. He said, the day follows the night. And the warm spring follows winter. So he who would see the brightness of day must go through the darkness of night. If we would greet the spring, we must endure the cold winter. Years after this, after World War II ended and the North and the South began to separate in Korea, he remained in the South, but there were communist sympathizers in his community that heard about who he was and what he was doing as a pastor. And, and, and a few of them uh, went to his house. Pastor Juan had six kids, three boys and three girls. And these communist sympathizers began making fun of them, uh, ridiculing them, mocking them, beating them, dragging one of them out in particular and hurting him. His older brother came out to defend his brother. And as they got into a fight, they began calling on these men to repent and to trust in the Lord and receive forgiveness. But in the face of that gospel command, these men shot these two sons. Word got back to the father that this had happened. Thankfully, police had captured the man who had fired the bullet. They arrested him and put him on trial to be executed. 
The father, though, sent his daughter to the courtroom with a message that said, do not execute this man. I have forgiven him, and I will adopt him as my son. So the court released him, and he went and lived with the father of the two boys that he had murdered. Eventually came to know Jesus and lived with his father in this community as they led the church. In his memoir, Pastor Juan wrote down these prayers that he prayed to the Lord during this time. He says, I give thanks for my sons who became martyrs, even though they were born of my bloodline. For I am so full of iniquities. Who am I? He says, it is a blessing to die in peace with faith in the Lord Jesus. And I give thanks that they received the glory of martyrdom, having been shot and killed while preaching the gospel. I give thanks to God who enabled me to adopt as my foster son the enemy who killed my sons. And I give thanks to God who gave me the joy of feeling God's love and faith to endure in this hardship. How do we choose the gospel in the face of injustice? We have to know the love of a father who chooses to adopt us as his very own children, even though we were the ones for whom his only son died on the cross. 